Welcome to the British Football and Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Dami Adewale, and in this series, I'll be speaking to individuals who were involved in the affiliations between football clubs and basketball clubs in Britain from the 1970s to the 2000s. In episode three, we'll be discussing why the collaborations between the football and basketball teams ended. We'll begin with Richard Rudd, as he talks about who was at fault for the partnership between the football team and the basketball team falling apart at Crystal Palace. I only have to look at way that the Crystal Palace basketball team finished, yeah, and collapsed and moved on, and they had an unbelievable junior women's organisation, people doing all sorts of things, you know, and I, I really blame the leadership of the Crystal Palace basketball um, for not continuing that legacy, yeah. I can't really blame the football because I don't think the football clubs understood what basketball was, yeah, and they were going through turmoil and it wasn't coordinated. It was just, it's on TV, let's get associated because very few, very few of the associations with the football teams lasted, yeah. I think Man United lasted a little bit longer than ours and also I think Aston Villa continued for a long time because I remember playing, going up to Aston Villa and playing on their carpet floor where they, all the football players played. Um, but, yeah, I, I just don't think there was any... Anyone was sitting down. I think they, they were they were young people in the sport. You know, when I'm talking about the owners of the Crystal Palace basketball team, you know, at the time they were probably late 30s, yeah, still trying to make their way through thought they'd hit on um, a money train, you know, and unfortunately they didn't have any wealth themselves or they couldn't generate the wealth for the investment that was required to for it to keep going. After the Crystal Palace affiliation ended, the demise of football and basketball affiliations was accelerated. Similar to the Crystal Palace situation, football team owners were looking at basketball clubs as a means to accumulate income quickly and sell at their peak. With this in mind, basketball in Britain gradually lost its structure and it's reached a point where money allocated from Sports England is conditional depending on milestones reached by the sport. The financial damage has meant many teams have folded. Sadly, this happened with Tony Garbalotto's former team, the London Towers, in 2009. This year, the Worcester Wolves have withdrawn from the British Basketball League to play in the lower-tiered National Basketball League because of this. Cricket and rugby are very popular in England, but I think it's fair to say football is the most popular sport. The problem with what I've just said is basketball wasn't mentioned. The stats in the previous episode show how basketball is played a lot recreationally nowadays, but the sport is still not held in high regard as a commercial product. In the 1980s when Dan Doyd was at Portsmouth, basketball was a lot more popular with the broadcasting deals and numerous sponsorships, but it was still no match for football. Because of this, and the state of the football club at the time, Dan talks about the downfall of Portsmouth basketball as the priorities of the owners changed. I think, you know, football is, is the sport in the country. It, it, it certainly was then, <clears throat> as it is now. And uh, uh, you can see how um, 
passionate football people are about their sport and about their club. And I think if they, you know, I mean, look at the or the Glaziers and the Crockies, uh, you know, the current rich owners, the pressure they're under to invest more, spend more on their teams now, and you're, you're in the tens and hundreds of millions of, of pounds. Uh, so back then it wasn't quite the same level, but it, it's, uh, you know, as far as they're concerned, football's number one. That's where the priority should be. What, you know, what's this, this basketball thing? They, they, it's not something they were accustomed to or cared about, certainly, as far as they're concerned. They wanted to see their, their football club be the best they could be, especially at the time, you know, it's important thing in Division Two. They, they, they were very close to, to making up to the, the Division One top division. And they felt, well, if we weren't spending this money on the basketball team, and, you know, they, it was a fair, you know, we, we were one of the richer clubs in terms of basketball. Uh, you know, we had uh, players had good contracts there. Um, that if, if we weren't there, that could have been more better players at the football club. And so uh, on the continent, you've got your, your top clubs like Real Madrid, Barcelona. Uh, they all have, they have basketball clubs as well in, in uh, Italy and France and what have you. Uh, they kind of work side by side, or I don't know how closely they are affiliated, but um, uh, they're multi-sport clubs. And I think at the time, that's what they thought here, that, hey, we could use that European model here that will work in, uh, in this country. But as it seemed, it didn't seem to work out that way. The European model that Dan spoke of just then is the blueprint for modern day football and basketball affiliations and will be expanded on in the next episode. Moving on to the Everton Tigers now, Tony Garbalotto tells me why the collaboration fell apart and steps that could have been taken to keep it going. Like the other affiliations, the project collapsing was because of money, but there were other aspects to blame as well. As the club's hierarchy was restructured, it became apparent that the football leadership didn't know what to do with a basketball team. The biggest problem of all though is um, you know, as a football club, their core business was football and they didn't really fully understand basketball. So they needed someone that sat between the, you know, the board and the professional staff of the football club and what we were under, which was Everton in the community. And when Gary was the chief executive there, you know, in my view, that project would have continued for, you know, for a good amount of years. And probably um, knowing Gary could have probably really found a, uh, a principal sponsor, potentially even funder um, in a certain, in another way um, that would have kept that project, just keep, you know, kept going. Um, but you needed that person who um, understood so many of the, the ways of funding from the professional football club side and also from a, you know, from a, from a, from a government type side, from any of the statutory type money that they were getting as a, uh, as a charity, as a, as, as, a, as Everton in the community. And he would have, I'm pretty certain if he had stayed within that job, he would have found that uh, he would have dealt with that. He wasn't there. So now we end up with, there was a, a, a nice woman that took over. Matter of fact, she's now very high in the football club. Um, and she was really good. 
but she had no affiliation to basketball. She really couldn't get it. Um, and it's a shame because we, as again, as a sport, um, we can't fully, you know, get people to understand not just about the sport itself, but also um, about what the benefits are, you know, off the court. Those off-court benefits are clear as basketball is a sport that doesn't require a lot of maintenance. All you need is a hoop and a ball. You don't even need anyone else to play with. A lot of people have fun working on shooting by themselves. However, even the bare minimum for basketball is hard to come by in England as many of the hoops don't even come with nets. In fact, during lockdown, many basketball hoops were taken down entirely to prevent people from playing and they haven't been replaced. On a more positive note, Tony recalls some of his favourite memories during his tenure with the Everton Tigers. The club was very successful during Tony's time and affiliating with a high status football club contributed to that success. Their Everton name brought the prestige that allowed the basketball team to attract some of the best talent across England. So I just wanted to end on a kind of a, a sentimental note for you. What were, what were your, are some of your favourite memories with Everton Tigers basketball, would you say? I mean, winning winning that first trophy was a special, um, you know, was special for all of the fans um, and all of the people within that, you know, that first group of, you know, a part of the organisation. So, you know, it was just, it validated everything that Gary and Henry and John Hollis Davis had done, um, you know, when they put that project together. Um, and just seeing, you know, how that resonated throughout the club at that time was was really great. Um, and then, you know, we, you know, we were able to win some more trophies and stuff. And I, I loved, uh, you know, all of all of our, my time there. It was one of my, you know, great times as a as a professional coach. Um, I just wish we could have kept that project running and not just made it a project, just made it part of our community. Um, I really believe that, you know, Liverpool could have sustained that. And, um, yeah, so a little bit, you know, disappointing. In one hand, it was, you know, a great time. Second hand was a disappointment, especially as we were building and we had put together a great team and there were some great British players that were playing on our teams. We just couldn't, um, just couldn't keep that structure together. And then obviously, you know, once the football club did um, withdraw their support, it always became harder to keep that project running. Usually, a new venture achieving a lot of early success would lead to those funding the venture investing even more money to keep it going. However, success for the Newcastle United Sporting Club did not equate to profit. The Newcastle situation in the 90s has a lot of similarities to the Portsmouth situation in the 80s. Newcastle's football team was competing for the Premier League title, so anything else was deemed a distraction. Ken Nottage explains why the Newcastle United Sporting Club ended as the priorities of the owners were directed back to the true moneymaker. Their main love was always football. And the, the concept of the football club driving its sponsors, driving its commercialism down to those other sports to make them successful is a good concept, but it was going to take a long time until those other sports were 
commercially successful. And I think the fact that they'd had some early success in those sports um, probably um, dampened their momentum for pumping lots of money in for many years. Because when you look at, you know, why would they pump money into these other sports, which were loss making, you know, they they hadn't established themselves commercially to a point that they could stand on their own two feet. So the the owners needed to underpin them financially. And when you look at you know, why do you underpin an organization or a structure, you underpin it financially because you hope that it grows and it gets to a point that it's successful. And perhaps one of the reasons was these sports had some early success. You know, they'd recruited well and they got some trophies back. And I think when they looked at the cost versus was their attention being read, was it being diverted away from the core product? That means football into these other areas. So, so their attention was being pulled away somewhat into the area that really made them the money and was the most important. It was costing them a lot of money. And also they'd had early success anyway. Continuing the trend of a positive note to counter the negative, Ken Nottage recalls an interesting story from his playing days in Sunderland when British basketball was at its most popular. I'm going to take you back to 1982. 1982. So I just left, uh, as, as I mentioned, I left uh, as a youngster the Crystal Palace setup. They were always fed up about that I'd always seen them as the big giant that we want to beat Sunderland had won some championships played in Europe and we had a team that really worked and we all all the players lived in Sunderland we were pretty much full-time although I was studying we were like a team of just brothers we were just you know we just got on so well there was never any problems and we played together so well we're having a good year and we got through to the um the finals the playoff so on day one i think which, which was the saturday we played against uh hemel Hempstead team with two and a half minutes to go we were eight points down and we won by one point so the next day we're in the final and guess who it's against it's against crystal palace Crystal Palace are the favourites, and we battled it out in this game. It was a full house. It was on, it was on um, TV. There was a good view, uh, viewings, ratings, and this was a big battle. Came to the end of end of the match, and it was a draw. Now in basketball, you can't have a draw. The twist here was that they had anticipated they hadn't anticipated a draw. They'd always thought Crystal Palace was going to win. And therefore, the program, I think it was on Channel 4 or whatever it was, one of the channels had decided that it would be switching off at that time because the game would end. But it was such a close game. Interestingly, the program that they were meant to switch over to was a program that was very, very popular at the time called Upstairs, Downstairs. And it was a real, real popular program. But they decided they couldn't leave the basketball. So we picked up over 4 million viewers for this game as it went into extra time 
and it went into extra time, 15 minutes each way, whatever it was at the time. And, um, and we won by one point. That's it for episode three. Thanks for tuning in. In the final episode, we'll cover whether there's any room for optimism in terms of these affiliations returning and what action would need to take place for that to happen.